Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. Really happy to bring you this episode, just like all my episodes. But this episode had a special place in my heart, mainly because we talk a lot about our friends, the pig. So as many of you know, um, I've been a part of a few pig butcherings now. And this past weekend was Lulu Fest, which I talked to uh, our guest about on the show about. Um, And our guest, he's awesome. His name's Mark Essig. He is the author of Lesser Beast, A Snout-to-Tail History of the Humble Pig. And Mark asked me, we kind of started the conversation talking about, because uh, before we started, I was telling him about you know what we do at Ohio GSD. And uh, he had actually um, was very interested, was asking me about Lulu. And um, he asked me why Lulu was, uh, was going to be where we were having Lulu Fest. And I didn't know, and I think I just kind of made some shit up. And I and I, uh, I'm tired of making shit up. I was guessing, but I just need to be comfortable with saying I'm not really sure. But I thought I did know. So out of all fairness, but basically, what was going on with Lulu? Lulu was 500. I mean, when we, I think her hanging weight was 520. Um, those sows are supposed to be around 500 pounds um, when they get big, a mature one. She was about three and a half years old. Um, she was surprisingly really lean. Um, and so Lulu was only weaning about 50% of her litter. So she wasn't, she wasn't having a lot of luck with her litters. So I was kind of right with that. Um, but also too, her hip was bugging her and, uh, you know, the Fogels are good people. They don't, they don't like seeing their animals suffer. So it, it was time for her to, to go. So Lulu is a, uh, Gloucester or Gloucester. I don't really know how to say it. Most people just refer to him as Goss or Old Spot. The other pig, which we were just calling Lulu Jr., it's just a feeder hog. So feeder hogs are Yorkshire, Berkshire cross. So she was a York, Yorkshire, Berkshire cross, or he was, and he was 280 pounds. So it just kind of tells you about the way the uh, the Fogels raise their animals. I mean. That's a feeder hog. I think most feeder hogs, if you if you put them in confinement and everything, I don't think they weigh more than 100 pounds a lot of times or just over 100 pounds. But uh, this big girl was uh, – this big boy was up to about uh, close to 300, and he had some delicious-looking hams on him. So big shout-out to the Fogels uh, at Black Fork Farm for having us out. And if you guys actually go – so they actually just launched their website for the farm. Check them out. They actually are are selling pork right now. They also have pastured pork, poultry. Um, so if you guys are local and you want to order from the Fogels and you're in Ohio, they, they'd be more than happy to, to, to sell you some pork or chicken or um, whatever they have for sale. Uh, it's great quality meat. I mean, I've been there. I've seen their setup. Uh, I get a pretty good idea of, of what, what to look for these days. So also want to shout out before we get get started, Hand Hewn Farms. So um, Andy or Andrew Lane or Andy Lane is the one that referred to me, referred me to this author. Uh, I want to shout him out. Um, so if you guys are actually interested in having a workshop or holding a workshop um, and you want to learn the old ways, these guys are really good at it. They'll teach you charcuterie and everything else like that. Um, you can go to their website, handhumefarm.com, and check out their workshops. Uh, even if you just want to attend one of their workshops, you'll see a list there. Um, great guys. Uh, I'm happy to have them 
be a part of my local community. Um, you know, I feel rich, uh, and not in the, the dollar amount, but just in the social amount of all the cool people I've been able to meet this past year. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, with hogs. Um, so, and so, and finally, I just want to shout out the affiliates. So if you go to newfarmsupply.com, use code word sample, save 20% on anything on the website, and you'll also get free shipping. Uh, also go to Nature's Image Farm. Greg still has a lot of nursery stock in there. Big shout out to Greg too, because I mean, Greg's Greg's kind of the galvanizer of the Ohio GSD crew. Um, so nature, or yeah, new Nature's Image Farm. Use code word sample. You'll save 10%. Uh, they have lots of trees, uh, lots two different kinds of comfort of balking comfrey. So check that stuff out. And last but not least, if you want to become a profitable market gardener or a small-scale farmer, um, I highly recommend Profitable Urban Farming. Profitable Urban Farming uh, is a course that I took. Um, it's, you know, you'll learn all the techniques and everything like that. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. There's going to be a link in the show notes for all the farms and all the everything I'm talking about right now. Uh, there'll, there'll be a link in the show notes for you to save um, $100 off the purchase of the course. And there's also going to be a link uh, just to sign up for the payment plan. And finally, Mark was kind enough to let me share the audiobook for free. So if you don't have an Audible account and you want to listen to Lesser Beasts, uh, I highly recommend you download and listen to it. That's the way I got it. Um, so you'll actually be able to start a free Audible account with with this free download, and you can listen to the book. Highly recommend it, guys. With that being said, guys, let's start the show. I'm joined by Mark. Is it Essig or Esig? Essig. It Essig. means vinegar in German. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I have Mark Essig, and he is the author of Lesser Beast. The uh, man, you just told me, and I I messed it up again, man. It's the the snout to a snout to tail. a snout to tail history of the humble pig. Correct. There we go. There we go. Second time's a charm. <laughs> But uh, this is a, it's a great book. I'm excited to have you on. And it's an in-depth history of pigs. Anybody that listens to the show knows that um, I love, I love good uh, beyond, or we like this, we like to call it beyond organic forest raised craft pork, Mark. And uh, we actually, so I've, I've, I've helped work up three pigs so far and we got Lulu Fest coming up this weekend. Um, so we're going to, I actually, my Christmas gift was some old hickory knives so I could help butcher the hog. And we just come together in the old, old school way, Mark, the old fashioned way as a community. And we help each other out, no charge. And it's a, it's a, it's a good time, but, uh, sounds great. Is Lulu the name of the pig? Yeah. Lulu is a sow and, um, the, she, they've bred her a few times and she keeps, uh, I, I forget. They told me why they want to butcher. I think she, she's just having issues rolling over and I think they actually, She's a spotted, and I think they want to switch to a different heritage breed. Um, mm. So I know the one I get, it's half tam, half uh, large black, so it's like a perfect bacon pig. But uh, right. this season was especially good 
um, because it was it was like a huge cicada season. And oh. nobody talks about cicada finished pork, but I tell you what, once you have it, like those pigs, my pig was a healthy, very, I mean, it was a, it was a big pig, but it, I mean, the meat was all marbled. Um, it was a perfect, uh, finished hog. And I think before it was before we, I mean, living, I think it was like f- over 400 pounds hanging weight. So it was, it was a big, and, big pig. And did, did you, uh, did you go and collect cicadas or just count on the pig to, uh, to do that herself? So yeah, no, she just, uh, she just dug them up. So yeah, I mean, they were just uh-huh. rooting in the woods and they were just digging them up. And, um, cause it, it the way, uh, Greg has it set up. So he just, he has like different paddocks and it's just a paddock shifting system. And then they, once it gets to a certain amount, he just, he just opens the gate up and then they, they go to the new feed and it's actually, uh, it's all gravity fed too. So we did bucket feeding the first year, but they got used to it. And actually when he stopped bucket feeding them, they ate less. So when they could forage and actually, and I, and I guess it doesn't work with all breeds of pigs, but he's had great success with it. And it's all, like, and it kind of shattered the myth that a pig would eat itself to death. But I think in certain situations it will. But you know, if if it's you have, it, I've never I've never heard of that happening. But it, as long as it's good to food. death, yeah, free free choice is uh that that's the standard method. Yeah, maybe maybe if you gave it the wrong thing, it might eat itself to death. But uh, that would happen to the best of us, I think. I think so too. I think so too. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely free choice, and um, and then he just shifts it around, and I actually put that on my deposit just recently to get a whole pig. So this year, so last year I sent half of it off to the butcher, or I sent my whole half off to the butcher. But after like getting in and and learning some charcuterie and and doing you know some uh, you know just the more uh, there's a good uh, there's a there's a good book about um, curing your own meat and everything like that. And after doing that, it's just, I think I want a more, uh, kind of, I just, I want a more, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to shoot a pig and, and, and go through the whole process. Cause I think I, there's a part of me, you know, after reading like the omnivores dilemma, there's a part of me where you have to, I want to cultivate that relationship with my food. So mm-hmm. and it's, and it's been a, it's been really rewarding, man. And it's, it's something that uh, we usually will do is we'll read a Wendell Berry poem and then, uh, we shoot the pig and do it, and then we start the whole process. So, but uh, anyways, um, I could talk to you about this forever, but I want <laughs> I want you to talk about I want you to talk about your book about these awesome beasts, your lesser beasts that we've talked about. So, so what made you want to just start researching pigs and do this whole history? Uh, well, I'm a, a historian by training. I have a PhD in history, but I've Ever since I finished, I've been working mostly in journalism and other forms of writing. Um, And about 10 years ago, I was living in Southern California in Long Beach with my wife and our newborn son. And uh, I got a job at the newspaper in Asheville, North Carolina, down at the other end of the Appalachians from you. And uh, one of the things about Asheville is right in the center of town, there are statues of pigs. So being a historian, I wanted to read about this because I didn't associate Appalachia with pigs. Um, and what those pigs were doing were commemorating a phenomenon of livestock droving through the Appalachian Mountains. This started about 1800 and it trickled out maybe in the 1920s or so. 
And at the peak years in the 1840s and 50s, there would be tens of thousands of pigs, a scattering of other livestock, but mostly pigs, walking uh, through the center of Asheville, which was a, a smaller town then, not a city. In peak years, maybe 150,000 pigs. And, and I have to say that my first reaction to this was just sheer delight. Like who knew that you could herd pigs? Everybody's heard of cattle drives. Nobody's ever heard of pig drives. Were there, were there pig boys with lassos? Would a pig go where you wanted it to go? Um, so mostly it was just curiosity at first. And then I dug in a little bit um, and it got complicated pretty fast because where were those pigs going? They started – in East Tennessee, where there was a little mini corn belt region, they raised a lot of corn, uh, fattened a lot of hogs on that corn, but they didn't have anybody to sell it to. So down in South Carolina and Georgia, they grew mostly cotton. Um, and the enslaved workers they had, of course, needed to eat, but they didn't raise enough food to feed them. So you had a supply of pork on one side of the Blue Ridge Mountains and a demand for that pork on the other. And the only way to get those pigs from here to there was to walk them. So that's that's why you had these enormous hog drives going across the mountains. And it's sort of a reason why I like to write about pigs and animals and food is because as soon as you talk about food, you're getting pretty deep into the way societies think about themselves, the way they organize themselves, the, the way they build hierarchies and structure their politics. So it's just a, it's just a fascinating way to understand a society. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, pig drive. Like that seems like uh, it just sounds so crazy, like how they would how they because pigs are pretty. I mean, they kind of I mean, they kind of do what they want. They're not really. <laughs> I, I imagine you could probably train them to a certain extent, but I just never – I mean it's always like the fear of letting your pig get out. And yeah, you know, and, and, and it's one thing that's that's never quite – it was taken as routine in all the literature. There's not a ton written about it, but for instance, there's an article in uh, in Harper's New Monthly Magazine from – oh, I think it was the 18 – 1850s that dealt with it and nobody seemed all that surprised by the phenomenon of hog droving and and the only thing i can think is like before the era of trucks with internal combustion engines um the only way to get a hog from farm to market was by driving it so i've seen a lot of pictures of small-scale hog drives from farms to local slaughterhouses or to, or to um you know, to ports where you could put them on a riverboat. So I think it, herding herding pigs on a small scale was was utterly routine because that was the only way to move them. The only thing that made these drives particularly unusual is that some of the pigs were driven for a hundred, two hundred, three hundred miles, um, and that's what that's what makes it rather extraordinary. They had to build up a rather complicated infrastructure to make it happen. With the pigs uh, being driven for ten miles, and then you would lay up at a tavern, feed the pigs in the corral, eat yourself, and then wake up the next morning and do it all over again until you got wherever you were going. Yeah, it's interesting. It'd be an interesting finish, I imagine, to those pigs too, doing all that two and three hundred miles of exercise towards the end of their life. Yeah, and from what I read, the um, this particular route, uh, it started. Um, it, it goes through a rather narrow river gorge along the French Broad River um, that runs from. Um, it's it's rather it's a rather wild. Um, uh, 
rapid, rapidly descending river between Asheville and the Tennessee line. And apparently when they were going uphill on that stretch, they would lose a little bit of weight. But for the rest of the journey with a more gentle grade, the reports were that they could actually hold their weight or even gain a little just by taking their time walking and eating a lot of corn at night. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And and I think what's even more interesting is um, like to kind of go back years um, and generations because you cover – pigs in china you you cover pigs and uh like the the why the stigma of pigs possibly resulted in um different religions and why some religions didn't want to eat them and then why other religions wanted to, to eat them and it calling somebody a swine or or a sow or something like that why that was such an insult um do you want to cover some of that stuff real quick as well mark yeah i mean the the way I the way I deal with pigs in the book is I, I refer to them as the most loved and loathed creature in the world, um, and uh, I think so. Maybe maybe we'll start by just talking about the love side of it. Like, why are pigs popular? Well, compare them to the other standard forms of livestock. Take a cow; it'll gestate for nine months and give you a calf or two. Um, a, uh, a lamb or a goat gestates for five months and will give you two lambs or kids, maybe three, but a pig on the other hand gestates for less than four months, will give you six, eight, 10, 12, maybe even more piglets. And each one of those piglets will reach slaughter weight, um, or reproductive weight, whichever you prefer, in less than a year. So if you want to build up a herd size, if what you're looking for is a lot of meat and fat very quickly, uh, then the pig is really the best livestock for you. And that's why they've been so useful and so embraced all over the world. The other benefit is that all of that meat, um, it takes to cure very well. Like you've, There's a reason that most of the cuts of pork that we know best are in their cured form, especially uh, ham and bacon and sausage. Uh, and what that meant is that before the advent of artificial refrigeration, which has just been around for a hundred, little over a hundred years, um, pork was the best meat that you could cure and save and provide a year-round source of protein. Um, and that was really an invaluable thing to have. Um, so that's that's sort of the the love side of pigs. Oh, I'll add one more love factor is that the pig is an omnivore. If you have run into a goat or a sheep, well, goats are a little more complicated, but a sheep or a, or a cow over the past several thousand years, say five to 7,000 years of their domesticated lives, uh, they're usually standing in a field eating something green. Whereas a pig might be eating acorns in the woods or cicadas, as you mentioned, in the woods. Yeah. Or uh, they might eat clams on the beach or mussels. There's lots of reports of that. Uh, they eat garbage on city streets. Pretty much anything a human will eat, a pig will eat. And they'll eat quite a few things that that we're not very comfortable eating. So when you think about it um, – it's a very it's a very useful skill for a pig to have, but that omnivorousness, like I've been referring to it as a virtue, but it's also been considered um, a vice. So 
I can probably talk about that best in terms of of the origins of the domestic pig. Um, scientists think that they were domesticated, or I should say, became domestic on two occasions: once in China and once in the Near East, in what's now Turkey. Um, and we know more about the the second case from Turkey. And so what what they think happens is that about ten thousand years ago, uh, people first settled down into permanent villages. And when people gather in large groups, uh, one of the things they're really good at is producing a lot of garbage. Uh, and at this time, where we would be talking about butchery scraps from hunted animals, uh, spoiled grains, spoiled nuts, maybe burnt food that they were cooking. Um, and that spoiled food um, was a food was a source of food for other animals. People didn't want to eat it, but other animals did. And one of the animals that wanted to eat it was the Eurasian wild boar. Like people, by leaving this garbage out, had created a new niche in nature, a new source of energy that other creatures could exploit. So it's thought that these Eurasian wild boars, Eurasian wild boars, came into town and started eating the food. And some of these wild boars were better at it than others. Uh, the ones that were sort of timid, that didn't pose a threat to people because otherwise they would have been killed. Um, but, but on the other hand, weren't so frightened of people that they ran away at the first approach. So the pigs that were best, the Eurasian wild boar that were best outfitted to exploit this new food source, eventually over hundreds, uh, maybe a couple thousand years, evolved in a true evolutionary process into the creature that we know of as the domestic pig. So it was really its role as a scavenger. Um, and out of that role emerged um, out, emerged the, the domestic pig as we know it. Yeah, you said that they, they kind of domesticated themselves. And that was that was something that was interesting, too, because a lot of and it, it's also and, and I think about that, too, is how 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 pigs or if they get loose and they they do go feral like they they uh, they I mean, doesn't their like body chemistry change um, in a sense like they they start to their their hair starts to change, at least pink pigs. From my understanding, their their hair will start to change and they'll start growing tusks again. Um, yeah, I think the uh, the the genes start to express in a very different way under the stresses of living on their own. And yeah, they after even within the life of one escaped pig, but certainly within a couple of generations, uh, you'll get a lineage of domestic pigs looking much more like wild boar, uh, just because they can they can move back and forth across that uh, feral, wild, and domestic line much more easily than uh, than other creatures can. And it's particularly interesting, like when it, when you're talking about this, um, the original domestication events, um, the it, it's thought that say with goats or sheep or cows. Uh, these were creatures that lived in herds and open land, um, and anthropologists and animal behaviorists think that they were probably domesticated more or less purposefully, that hunters would follow these herds. At first, they killed indiscriminately, but then as they they realized that they could conserve this resource, they would cull the young males that weren't needed for breeding. They could preserve certain animals with the characteristics they liked. And gradually, the process of hunting these animals turned into herding, turned into domestication. But that just didn't work for for pigs because they were they lived in small groups they were furtive they lived in the woods um so instead this other process that was was at work that that essentially was a self-domestication process 
Um, and so just just to to follow up to get to to get the to to the original question you asked me, um, th- that happened probably maybe ten thousand years ago. And for the next for the next several thousand years, um, everything went well. You had this alchemical process of pigs turning something you didn't want garbage into something you did want, which was food. Um, and just about everywhere pigs were available where they could live, where there was enough food and water, you would find pigs when you, when archaeologists dig up these villages. And then the change happens, um, or at least we find evidence of the change in the first civilizations, first in Mesopotamia, say in 3500 BC or so, and then 500 or so years later in Egypt. Um, there you find the development of different attitudes towards pigs. They were pigs were not sacrificed to the gods. You don't find the remains of pigs in the um, higher rent districts of the cities when they're excavated. Um, and you see in the textual evidence a lot of references to pigs as being filthy creatures. They will despoil the temple. Um, and it, it has to do with a lot of things with with different styles of religion and the way that the sacredness and purity was, was viewed within those cultural traditions. Um, but at least part of it seemed to have to do with the diet of the pigs. Um, these were creatures that ate filth and and anybody who uh, could afford to eat other things tended to stay away from them. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Uh, and now it's uh, and it, and it's also too just because uh, the interesting thing that I I think about pigs too is it, the quality of meat is still very different uh, of a pig based on what it is eating. And it's and it's and it's kind of obvious. Like when you go get a grocery store pork versus, and I think that's with all animals. But I feel like it's 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 even more so with pigs, just because what, like what you said, it's an, they're an omnivore and they can eat, you know, pretty much anything. And so it, when you eat a, a pig that's that's fed acorns and allowed to like kind of be a pig versus a pig in a pen, it's it's a totally different quality of meat. And uh, yeah, and and there's there's biological reasons for that. I don't want to get too deeply into it because it will expose the limits of my physiological knowledge. But um, ruminants, like a cow, in the process of rumination, which is a a, um, a process of fermentation within the gut, the fats that those animals ingest are actually transformed, whereas pigs actually lay down fats in the same way that – in the same – type that they consume them. Like that's why if you ever talk to a a processor, like a meat processor, sometimes they'll talk about having um, uh, processed, say, a mast-fed pig or or, or particularly here in the South, there's a lot of people or at least a few people left who like to finish their pigs on uh, peanuts. And because that's that's an unsaturated fat, it lays down, it's much more, it's not that you don't see that firm cap of uh, back fat the way you would on a corn-fed pig. It's a little, it's a little darker in color. It's oilier to the texture, um, and it produces some astonishing flavors. But it's also more difficult to process, and it also turns rancid more quickly. Um, I'm getting off topic here, but like one of the things I noticed, say from Cincinnati pork packers in the 1850s, they would advertise their prices, and they would actually penalize you for mast-fed 
pigs because the flesh was oily and it couldn't preserve as well. What they wanted was corn-fed pork. Of course, now most of us would pay quite a premium for having a mast-fed pig. Well, it's also, I mean, it just kind of goes to kind of the direction that food went. Like it went from people, it's, you know, I I talked to my grandpa about it, like learning these skills and like we're all about learning the old-time ways. And, you know, but a big reason is just because it was, you know, people had to had to raise pigs and butcher them on their own to survive versus now it's like okay this is it's 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 something that you should just learn how to do and it's 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 more of a choice and you realize the importance of it of of taking on this task for your own versus giving it to somebody else and and i think it's um i don't know it's it's it kind of goes back to the the omnivores dilemma in a sense like you you once you realize the importance of your food and what you're putting in your body um you think about it differently versus, you know, well, I need to make a living. This is my, this, this pig is a resource. It's not necessarily an animal that I want to live a good life. So it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's just the, the change in the way we, we view food too, um, which you, you alluded to. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, although I, I always like to remember that it's, that we're also lucky to have a, a, a voice in these matters, a choice in these matters. Like yeah. for us, it, it, it's something optional. You'll still, you'll still eat even if you don't kill Lulu this weekend. Um, yeah. but when it, when it was a matter of duty and obligation and you would starve otherwise, or if it was just something you were expected to do, I think about what my mom tells me. She grew up in a, in a small town in central Missouri. And, uh, although most you read lots of romantic remembrances of hog slaughtering days uh her own memories weren't so fond because of course the work was very gendered and what did she as the oldest girl in the house end up doing she had to clean the intestines so they could make sausage so so the the pig slaughter day for her was no uh no. <laughs> was nothing to look forward to so yeah that that's one thing that uh we we don't do because i mean it's because now they have machines where they can you can buy sausage casings from intestines that are cleaned and everything because we do have that luxury of technology but i <laughs> i 100% agree with you yeah i mean it's that's like there's certain things i mean we, we try to make it so we don't waste it as much as possible like i i want to um next time i mean i would like to capture the pig's blood and make some black pudding i've had black pudding in england but it's mm-hmm. something that we don't eat here um so, and it's, it, you know, I've eaten, I mean, we, we try to eat, we actually try to cook up like the, the, uh, organs, um, immediately. And we kind of, we try to snack on it while we're, while we're working on the pig. So yeah, that's very, that's a traditional, a traditional way of doing since they, since the organs don't keep as well, you eat them more quickly. Yeah. Scramble uh, up the brains with some eggs. Yeah. We actually, uh, we're, we're big advocates of head cheese. That is something that we do uh, like yeah. head cheese, uh, but uh, so jumping again to the century, another really fascinating thing that you talked about was, uh, I believe it was the Spanish. And the Spanish would, whenever they'd conquest, they'd bring pigs with them. Um, and actually, that was kind of like what settled, pigs kind of helped settle America too. And, uh, and it's kind of like the unspoken weapon against the, against the Native Americans were the pigs. Um, so there's a couple things there, but also... The Spanish leaving the pigs on the island, which I'd heard before too, which is also really fascinating. So, if you want to, if you can uh, shed some light on that stuff, there. Yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, I think I feel like I didn't quite finish oh, my finish bad. my points. No, that was it was my bad because, um, 
people always want to know about uh, the the origins of the Jewish pork prohibition. And um, what surprised me the most is that I, I thought that that stood out, that they were unusual in that rejection of pork. But actually, when the book of Leviticus codified that um, – pork prohibition, which may have been 800 BC or so, that probably wouldn't have surprised any of the Jews' neighbors because just about nobody in the Near East of a certain class ate pork if they could avoid eating pork. So it was it was more routine. As a priestly, as a priestly people, the priestly class writing down the book of Le- Leviticus probably would not have surprised the priests of their neighboring religions. Um, it did surprise the Romans, I should say. The Romans um, loved pork as just about nobody before or since have loved pork. There's uh, there's one there's one surviving recipe collection from ancient Rome. It's got just a a handful of recipes for beef, a dozen or so for lamb, and just dozens of dozens of recipes for pork, including 17 recipes for suckling pig alone. Um, and I think when you try to try to explain this, it gets back to what you were just saying about, about the diet of the pig affecting how it tastes. Like why, um, why do we have like Jewish Near Eastern pork hatred on the one hand, Roman pork love on the other? It has a lot to do with the nature of religions, as I mentioned before, but it also had to do with the way pigs lived. In the Near East, a largely arid country, the only place that really provided a lot of good pig habitat was cities where pigs lived primarily as scavengers, whereas Rome, more rainfall, marshes, oak forests, as well as the wealth of the Roman Empire. So pigs were eating the roots of marsh plants. They were eating acorns in oak forests. Um, to a large extent, they were even eating grain that had been grown for human consumption. Romans were so rich that although people were starving in many parts of the Mediterranean, the Romans were buying up the grain and feeding it to their pigs. So whereas you had a garbage-fed pig on the one hand and a grain-fed or acorn-fed pig on the other, um, that could go at least part of the way towards explaining different attitudes towards pigs. Um, and I think that that sort of explains why I describe it as as sort of we flop back and forth between – Roman pork love, uh, Jewish pork hatred throughout the history of the West. And it has a lot to do with what the pigs were eating. If the pigs are eating well, living a good life, clean life, we tend to like pigs. If they're living on city streets, eating garbage, we tend not to like them. That's why in the early Middle Ages, Europeans loved pigs because they lived in the woods. After Europeans cut down all the trees, pigs had to retreat uh, back to the city streets, live on garbage. The uh, reputation of of pork declined for that reason, along with a couple of others. Now, finally, I'm going to get back to your question. Oh no, that was so fascinating. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you threw that in because I forgot. I did want you to talk about that. I forgot about that too. <laughs> no problem. Um, so, say by about 1500 um, A.D. Uh, there were not an enormous number. There were still a lot of pigs, obviously, in Europe, but its reputation had declined uh, as the forests of Europe had declined. One of the few exceptions was Spain, where they had preserved oak forests, of course, in a in a, in a tradition that continues today. Um, and when those um, 
Spaniards started to explore the new world, um, they took pigs with them. And that's why the the time of the forest pig, which had otherwise come to an end for the most part in Europe, it got fresh life. Because, of course, pigs being descended from Eurasian wild boars, um, they did not live in the New World. There were no pigs here until Columbus brought them along on his second journey. Um, and he landed in what's now the Dominican Republic, and he brought with him just about everything he might need to recreate a European diet in the New World. Um, the orchards failed. Most of the crops failed. The grains failed. Uh, the sheep didn't do very well. They tended to wither in the heat. The cows eventually did okay, but it took them a little while to build up a uh, tolerance for the climate and start reproducing well. But the pigs, man, as soon as those pigs, those sharp little hooves landed on the on the tropical mud, um, they started breeding like crazy. So within 20 years or so, um, say by the you know the 1510s, 1520s, uh, you start getting reports of pigs swarming like vermin among the uh, the islands of the Mediterranean in in what's now the Dominican Republic and Haiti and Jamaica and and all through there, pigs were taken um, taken to those islands, released, they bred by themselves. Um, and then they could be rounded up or shot and harvested and and provided a, a source of food. When Cortez took his army to the mainland uh, to slaughter the um, Aboriginal peoples who hadn't already been killed by European diseases, uh, he took dogs with him. He rode on horses and then trailing behind was a swine herd with pigs and the pigs provided a mobile source of food for these conquering Spanish armies. It was a little bit different in North America because uh, the conquest took a different shape. It wasn't quite uh, conquering armies wearing wearing armor. It was uh, um, at least um, the um, it was a process more of settlement where the and the um, the conquering of the Native Americans took a took a different form there. But pigs played a similar role in that um, they weren't really cared for. They weren't kept in styes. They were just turned loose. Um, and when you think about it, that's a useful skill for livestock to have because you – when you're settling a new land, uh, that you have a lot on your plate. You don't have time for the sort of careful animal husbandry that – farmers back in England might have expected by this time. So instead, you turned them loose, let them do their thing, rounded them up in the fall, cured their meat, and had your uh, winter's food supply. And uh, oh, yeah, what what you had mentioned, um, there's there's some uh, some really interesting historical work about pigs essentially being uh, sort of the the vanguard of colonization like you'd have a village and the people would live in the village and then rounding um roaming around that village you would have cattle but especially pigs and they would root up the crops of native american farmers they would discover the food caches that they would that they would hide they would root up um various marsh plants that native americans had relied on for food so sort of inadvertently and in a few cases advertently the livestock themselves um helped to 
drive Native Americans off the land and sort of serve the purposes of European empire and European settlement in the New World. There's a there's a terrific work of history called uh, Creatures of Creatures of Empire. It's called the author is uh, Anderson. It's really terrific. I'm I'm stealing all these ideas directly from her. Okay, I'll check. I'll have to check <laughs> that out. Um, and then two, uh, you know the uh, yeah. I mean that's it's so interesting. And and until and it was actually really recent as well that they started making people look like watch their pigs. Isn't that right? Like few state, like within the last hundred years where people had to have fences for their pigs um, and otherwise they would just let them, they basically just roam everywhere. Like you didn't, there was no law to say that you had to have your pigs in a confined area. I Didn't you mention that in your book as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, we think about open range, our mind immediately goes to the Great Plains and cattle herding, but the the entire country was open range at one point or another, um, which meant that you could let your animals roam on any land that was unfenced, regardless of who owned it. Um, the law was not that you had to fence in your animals, but that people had to um, fence in their crops. So say I plant a corn crop and your pig comes over and roots it all up, um, that's my fault for not building a good fence around the corn crop. So it was only like gradually it was New England and the Mid-Atlantic. They were the first states to to close down the open range. It stayed in the South uh, right through the Civil War and in some cases uh, – up in, up into the 1950s, uh, where people were allowed to to keep their keep their pigs uh, wherever they wanted. It was part of what was known as the rights in the woods, the way that people made a living by hunting, fishing, keeping livestock on privately owned land, on land that was owned by the government. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that. The range laws, um, the range was closed on a county by county basis throughout the South. And there's some really interesting work on this that shows that the first counties to close the range were the ones that had the highest African American populations, the highest percentage of freed slaves. And that range was was closed immediately after the Civil War. And the reason was um, rather explicitly to force um, – freedmen, um, freed slaves to work back in the fields. They did not want black people to be supporting themselves and have an independent living the way white people had in those same areas for decades and decades. So it was, they closed the range in order to deprive them of a way of supporting themselves. So it's another, (laughs) yeah. And, and there's even some, some comparisons of, uh, of per capita, uh, pig uh, pig ownership in in some of these counties that was it was it would be two or three pigs uh, before the Civil War before the range laws and then after a- after the range laws were closed um, all the pigs disappeared because people didn't have anywhere to keep them anymore and the result was was uh, in many cases malnutrition starvation diseases like pellagra things like that so it, it was really a a, uh, a horrendous chapter in our history. Absolutely. Now, when uh, we were we were talking about a little bit before, 
pigs in the city. So pigs in U.S. cities, and it was really common to have pigs all over the cities. Um, and and it's uh, and I think that's that's pretty interesting as well. And uh, then people would blame pigs for cholera, and they weren't really the reason for that. Um, do you want to touch on that as well? Yeah, you mean you can find a lot of references to pigs. Um... Like in New England, lots of ordinances that were passed to try to get people to pen their pigs and the ordinances kept getting passed and repassed and tightened to suggest that all these regulations on pigs didn't have much effect. Um, And as late as, say, 1840s when uh, Charles Dickens came to America and wrote a a book about it, um, he reports – pigs and sows walking down Broadway, eating their cabbage stalks. Um, and this, this was a time when there really wasn't effective sanitation. People threw their garbage out on the streets and it was pig's job to, uh, to clean up the garbage. And just as they had 10,000 years ago in, uh, in Anatolia, they cleaned up the garbage, uh, got fat and then were slaughtered and, and became meat. It was only, say, in the 1850s and 1860s when public health concerns as well as sort of the rise of the middle class in the city, they didn't want to see pigs in the street doing their business, mating in front of the high-toned ladies who might be shocked by such a sight. So that was that was really what drove the pigs from the streets. Um, but the next step, of course, was to rather than letting the pigs collect the garbage in the streets, collecting the garbage and taking it to the pigs. Um, this got a, a probably evident until the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Secaucus, New Jersey was known as the pig capital of the East because people collected all New York City's food waste, trucked it to uh, New Jersey, fed it to the pigs, then slaughtered the pigs and took the pork back to New York City. It was a, it was a beautiful cycle of life. Uh, so and and garbage feeding actually still goes on today. It's tightly regulated because if you don't do it well, say you feed pigs on raw pork scraps, uh, that's a good way to transmit trichinosis and swine fever and some other nasty diseases that can affect both the pig herd and people. Uh, so you have to cook. There are regulations about cooking garbage before feeding it to pigs, but it but it still happens. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's always kind of disturbing, and it's the whole feeding even like mad cow disease and stuff it's nature kind of has something built in so animals don't eat themselves in a lot of ways Um, i don't know there's a good piece in the uh new york times today about how widespread cannibalism is in the natural world check it out it's pretty cool oh yeah i definitely will i'll uh put a link in the show notes as well i I didn't know that i i have heard though that like and you you mentioned in the book because you know the, the interesting thing is is how how close pigs are to humans. Um, even the fact that, you know, we have, we use their, their valves for heart valves or even that they're trying to figure out a way to, to breed pigs for human organs. Um, yeah, there was, there was just a, a story in uh, the journal nature last week about that, about, about hybrid, hybrid pig humans with, with cells together with the, the eventual hope is that you can raise these creatures to have a, uh, to have human organs that can then be harvested and and won't be rejected when they're transplanted into people. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's uh, I think a while ago, the first time I actually heard about that was with sheep, and it was actually on Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura like years ago. And it, was, <laughs> it was this actual ridiculous, hilarious show, and he 
they talk about the humanzy and all and all this other goofy shit. Um, but uh, it, it's it's pretty funny. Um, but I I think uh, you know I, I think it's it's just the the history of pigs and even uh, Cincinnati. I had no idea that Cincinnati was originally known for for being a a place to take your pig for slaughter. Um, and pe- and it, it, and uh, that and until Chicago and that's how Chicago got big. Um, it's 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 pretty interesting. I mean the 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 relation the relationship humans have with pigs it's pretty unprecedented. I think versus like other animals, like it's always like pigs are smart. I mean, just being around pigs, pigs like belly rubs. And actually, <laughs> it, the weirder thing is the hate that I got from. There's a picture of my brother and I on Facebook, and we're uh, we're giving the belly rub to the the pig that I got, and people thought that the pig was dead, and it was like, no man, that pig's alive. Like the pig is like getting a belly rub, but it's it's a weird thing that the relationship that people have with their meat, and they don't they don't understand what they're eating, they don't know the animal. Um, but I think what was more interesting was the marketing of the other white meat. Um, and, and how they, they changed the way pigs were raised and actually totally changed the flavor of the meat. Uh, and it's, and, and actually I hated pork for a long time and I had no idea that pork could look the way my pork did, um, two years ago because of that whole campaign. Um, do you want to kind of talk about that as well? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I did want to comment on the, on oh, your yeah. rubbing the belly of a pig. That, yeah. that was something that I ran across a lot in the book is that, you know, pigs, I mean, uh, cattle, sheep, they live out on the fringes of town on pasture, but pigs tended to live in your sty. Like you gave it the leftovers of your own meal. Um, you, it was sort of a member of the family and then eventually you would kill it and eat it. Um, and it's even, as you were saying, like the, the, uh, anatomy of the pig you know they have guts like ours they have teeth like ours they're generalized omnivores they're monogastric um their musculature is very similar to ours so it's very there's there's this famous uh anthropological essay that that argues that the reason we have so many pig-based insults call people swine is that that was a necessary distancing because killing pigs made us so uncomfortable because it seemed like we were killing a matter of the family that a member of the family that we came up with all these filthy swine. Um, we had to sort of cast the pig out in order to be more comfortable with the fact that, that we were killing it. Um, that, that, makes a, any- that makes a ton of sense too. Sorry to interrupt you and I'll let you talk about the other white meat, but it's still hard, man. I mean, I, I, I think everybody, every time we do a, a pig butchering like whoever shoots the pig and has to do it is like fighting back tears and i think and that's like the point of us like reading that uh i don't know if you've ever read wendell berry but he's got this poem it's called yep. uh you know pigopolis or, or turning the, the 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 ritual of turning the pig into a human and it's uh and it's like every time we don't read the poem something goes horribly wrong and it's like somebody will miss the shot and then it's like then you really feel like a piece of shit because you're like, you don't want the pig to feel any pain at all. And it's, uh, and so I, I a hundred percent agree with that, uh, sentiment. Like it's to this day, it's still like, it's, it's still a heart wrenching thing. I mean, it's, it's a, like, it's, it's weird when people see that I, I butcher a pig or I help it and they think that I'm some kind of monster. It's like, not really. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but to me, it's important to have that relationship with pigs because they are so close. Like they're, they're not, they're not that far from us. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, exactly. And and not least when uh when you stick them and they squeal. That's uh that's a very human squeal that we that we hear. Absolutely. It uh it brings it home. Um so this is um I guess when you talk about the other white meat, you're talking about the rise of a different relationship with pigs. Um, one of the things that surprised me in the research was, you know, we make a big deal about pastured pork now. Um, but until uh, the 50s and 60s and really until the 80s, just about all pork was pastured, um, which meant that it lived in fields and you brought corn to it or maybe let it hog down the cornfield yourself. Um, sort of the the mixed farming where farmers in Iowa and elsewhere in the Corn Belt had some dairy cattle, had some cows, um, had some dairy cattle, had some beef cattle, kept raised pigs, raised corn and soy to feed their own pigs. That was really the rule. And when you read the USA, U- USDA statistics on the um, number of pigs, a number of farms that raised pigs, um, it was just thousands and thousands, just about everybody did it. And it was only um, starting in the 60s and then accelerating in the 80s and 90s that people developed a new way of raising pigs. That's when you uh, brought the pigs indoors to raise on slatted floors um, so that their waste fell down and could be flushed out. You didn't have to muck stalls anymore. Um, That's also when you're confining pigs, then control of breeding becomes um, something that's more possible to do um, in an efficient way, particularly through artificial insemination when you can really control the genetics tightly. And that was um, that was what made the other white meat campaign possible. Um, this is really a story that's in part about public health as people became scared of animal fats um, and sales of beef and pork were declining, sales of chicken were going through the roof because people thought it was healthy and lean. And uh, so it really involved in, in utter transformation. Pig farmers had all had always thought that they were raising um, – a red meat that competed with beef and all of a sudden they were raising a white meat uh, that competed with chicken. Um, and basically it, it just involved very careful breeding so that you would strip the uh, strip the fat out of pork and create an ultra lean pork chop, uh, which, it, which as you've suggested, uh, tastes awful, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which did not, which did not help the cause of pork. And it also created other problems because, uh, by breeding the fat out of pigs, um, you also created, um, what Temple Grandin has called neurotic pigs. They get very nervous. Sometimes they drop dead from fright uh, on the way to the slaughterhouse. Um, and of course, when you have a stressed out pig before slaughter, that really affects the meat quality. That's when you started getting a lot of problems with what are called uh, P- PSE pork, pale, soft, exudative. Um, if you ever bought a uh, a commodity pork loin in one of those shrink wrapped bags that are that are full of liquid. That was that was all the all the liquid that should have been in the pig's cells, making it soft, uh, leaking out into the bag around it, which was why those things really weren't worth eating. So it's the 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 great irony of this, they thought they were gonna help their cause by stripping the fat out of pork, but mostly what they did was um was damage their image by creating this barely edible product. 
Yeah, and it's uh, and it goes back to kind of like the because I've had uh, a couple. I've had I had a guest on. Uh, she wrote a book like the Big Fat Myth and why butter, bacon, and all this other stuff belong in your diet, and it was. It's all because of one, and, and and there's so many people that that talked that there's so many books about it now too about why you know sugar is actually the killer and it's not salt, it's not fat, it's not a lot of stuff. Um, but I, I think uh, I think it is kind of interesting with with pork, and it and it goes back to what we're talking about with their diet. I mean, you know, if if pigs, fatty pigs, I think raised incorrectly can probably be harmful because I'm sure their fat does carry in a lot of toxins and everything else like that, but. I mean, my man, the pig that I have, I mean, I, I only cook in like the pig fat and it's like my, my blood levels are fine. I mean, I could definitely lose weight due to, but that's, that has more to do with me eating, drinking too much craft beer or, um, eating, <laughs> eating bread or, or something like that. But I, it's, it's interesting. It's cool to see, you know, kind of this, this back to the land movement that's kind of, it's going on, I, I believe right now. And it's, you know, and, I, and I feel like a lot of it just starts with food. Like people start paying attention to their food and what's, what's, you know, what is pastured pork. And then it's, it's, it's interesting too, when you were talking about pastured pork that, you know, most pigs do better in the woods. Like there's a few heritage breeds that do fine in grass. Um, but most pigs, and if it's in grass, I think Joel Salton says it best, you know, a pig is a four wheel drive tractor with a plow on the front of it. And, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna tear up your pasture pretty quick. Um, but, uh, in closing, I, what I did want to talk, I did forget to ask you about the way woods used to be sold in England. And I think that's so fascinating because it's still just cause I think the term pastured pork kind of people get obsessed with that, but then they forget that, you know, pigs like the woods. Yeah, that there's some there's a few records if you go back to say early early medieval Europe of you would judge a land and sometimes sell land uh, not by its acreage or its board feet of lumber but by the number of pigs it could support. So if you had a a stand with a heavy concentration of oaks or beech trees. Um, then those were particularly prized for raising pigs. So that that was how you judge the worth of land, um, because the the for many years the main purpose of woods um, was as a source of pork. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I tell you what, Mark, we're almost at an hour, and I know you got to go get your kids soon. So um, I think this is a good good spot for us to finish up. Uh, before we go, what's a good way for people to kind of follow your work and? follow your writing and, and, and everything like that. If they want to read more of, uh, Mark Essig. Uh, I'm, I'm on the, uh, I'm on the web. My website is, uh, markessig.com. Um, that's sort of a landing page. If anybody wants to, anybody reads the book and wants to get in touch, tell me what they think. You can write to me through there. Uh, I'm at Twitter at Mark underscore Essig. Uh, I'm on Facebook at Mark Essig author. Um, I mean, I'm easy to find on the web. I always like to hear from readers. So, uh, so do get in touch. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, well, thanks again for joining me and, uh, looking forward to reading your next, next piece that comes out or, or, uh, and everything else like that. And I'm definitely going to check out, you have a, you have another book that you'd published before as well. Isn't that correct? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I wrote a book called Edison and the Electric Chair, a rather a rather different topic. It was about uh, Thomas Edison's role in the development of the electric chair. 
That sounds still sounds interesting. And if it's people, people ask me what the books have to do with each other, and all, all I can say is they both contain the word "cook," although in rather different contexts. <laughs> I think it's it's just about history and understanding where we come from, and I think that's important. So, well, anyways, everybody, thanks for tuning in, and uh, feel free to uh, sh- please uh, get a pick up a copy of Mark's book and read it. I'll have links in the show notes. I listen to it on Audible. Um, it's a great Audible book to listen to. And, uh, and thanks again, Mark, for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks, Drew. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome, sir.